Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today is Monday, August 10th, 2020. Today, we start a three-part miniseries on fertility. In the first podcast today, I'm joined by Dr. Susan Lobel, who is a specialist in reproductive endocrinology and infertility, practicing in New York City. Susan and I discuss an overview of infertility, including causes, diagnosis, and treatment. It's a nuanced topic, and Susan is terrific at explaining it in a way that we can all understand. Later this week, I will be discussing pregnancy in your 40s with Karen Blyer. Next week, we will have two podcasts on Monday on gestational carriers. For now, I hope you enjoy today's podcast on infertility. Should I be concerned? Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I am your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. I'm here with Dr. Susan Lobel, who's a reproductive endocrinologist and the founder of Metropolitan Reproductive Medicine, which is in New York City. Dr. Lobel, Susan, welcome to Healthful Woman. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to have you on. We've known each other a long time. We work together. Uh, we have a lot of patients in common. And I really thought it would be a great idea to have you on just to talk about fertility and infertility. And there's so many questions that people have about it and a lot of misconceptions I think people have either just from talking to friends or reading on the internet. And so I think this is a great opportunity to give our listeners insight from a real expert on this. So thank you. My pleasure. Explain to our listeners, you know, who you are, where do you practice, sort of what are you doing currently, just so they get a, a sense of who you are right now. Well, I did all of my medical training at Harvard in Boston and then moved to New York and originally was directing a large IVF program, but then decided I wanted to start a smaller, more personalized practice. And that's what made me start Metropolitan Reproductive Medicine. And particularly now, COVID era, it's worked out well because we don't have to worry as much about social distancing because it's a smaller practice. But that fertility is a very personal issue. And so that I wanted to be able to provide more personal care. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of fertility centers in New York City, maybe more than more concentrated than anywhere else in the world. And there's different ways that they're run. Some of them are very large with many doctors and you know, lots of space and, you know, okay, that's great. There's high volume. And then there's sort of practices more like yours, which are much more individualized where it's the same doctor and it's, you know, you know, every patient, every patient knows you and there isn't as much rotating other than maybe the, the personalized care. Are there advantages or disadvantages to either model is it, or is it just more so kind of a, a flavor, what people appreciate? It really depends on the individual patient because fertility can be a relatively simple matter or it can be very complicated. So if someone has a relatively simple situation, then care can be provided pretty much anywhere. I think the advantage is, number one, emotional, that just knowing your doctor and who you're going to see. And for some people, that's important. Other people, it's not as important. But for more difficult situations, I think there's an advantage of having one person who knows the patient and who is doing the ultrasound every time when the patient comes in for monitoring and also is familiar with the patient's previous care. 
So the analogy is sometimes used with patients. It's like going to college, which hopefully students will be back to doing soon. <laughs> that for for some people, going to a small college is the best for them. For other people, going to a large university is better. You can get a great education at either location. It's just what works best for you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so in terms of infertility itself, I mean, there's so much confusion out there. So what would you tell a couple is sort of normal in terms of the time they should expect it to take to get pregnant if they're trying to conceive? You know, when when should couples say, hey, this isn't normal anymore and they should start maybe being concerned or thinking about something? Basic physiology is that if you have a couple that does not have any fertility issues and they have intercourse around the right time of the month, the chances of conceiving are 20%. So it's a very complicated process. So it's important to remember that most cycles don't work. And so that, you know, if you can imagine flipping a coin where the chances are 50%, you know, sometimes you can get heads on the first try and sometimes it can take three tries, which is not to trivialize trying to get pregnant with flipping a coin. But so sometimes it can happen very quickly. Sometimes it can take a few more months, even if there's not a problem. For most couples, we say to wait a year before coming in if the woman is having regular cycles. What we know is that of couples who will conceive on their own, 65% will conceive within six months, 85% within a year, and 95% within two years. Now, if the woman is over 35, when we start seeing a decrease in fertility, we usually recommend coming in after six months of trying. So for most couples, they're going to get pregnant, most meaning more than 50% will get pregnant within six months. But the reason you wait till a year is because the, the majority of the remaining will get pregnant on their own by the time a year comes around, again, assuming they're under 35. They're not quite right, but that there's still a fairly high chance that they'll get pregnant within the the next six months. So, you know, if a couple's particularly anxious, sometimes people can say, well, I just want to come in and get and be evaluated because, you know, if it turns out the husband has a low sperm count, then it's much less likely they're going to get pregnant over the, the wife is going to get pregnant over the next six months. So we can do that also to say to have reassurance or if there turns out to be something on the woman's reproductive system. So, and that's why we say if a couple's over 35 to, you know, to come in after six months. Got it. Okay. Is there even a, a definition for infertility? Is there like a standard definition that you would get in a textbook? It's really difficulty conceiving. And nowadays that there are different options for conceiving and, you know, a woman who doesn't have a male partner can have a child. And But for infertility, we usually say for unprotected intercourse for, for a year is kind of the standard definition. Got it. But again, as you said, most couples are 85%. You said we'll get pregnant within a year. And then no, of couples of couples who will get pregnant on their own. Oh, I understand. So okay. Not, it's not most couples, but of couples who will get pregnant on their own, 65% of those will get pregnant within the first six months. I got and it. And 
another 20% will get pregnant within, within the second six months. Now, the caveat is that if a woman's cycles are irregular, then it's going to be hard to know when she's ovulating, so she should come in sooner. Or if a woman has had a ruptured appendix, suggesting that she may have scar tissue internally that can interfere with the function of her fallopian tube, she could come in sooner. Or if there's something that would raise the suspicion that the husband may have a decrease in sperm count, to come in sooner. So, and, you know, sometimes um, it's appropriate. Sometimes the couple can just be reassured, well, actually, everything looks okay. So, you know, go try on your own. And if you're not pregnant within six months, come back. Right. Is there a downside to doing the tests that you would run on a couple who are having difficulty conceiving? Is there a downside to doing it earlier? That's a good question. Well, there's the cost factor, but also that there's a limited, there's a limit to the predictive value of the test. So in other words, a couple may come in and there may be a mild decrease in the husband's sperm count. Now that it may not be significant. So the, you know, if you do the test too early, then the husband goes to see a urologist. He may end up with surgery or other things like that. And so sometimes if you come in too early, you may end up with treatment you don't really need. 20% of the time when a couple has difficulty conceiving, we don't find anything on the test. But if a couple comes in and the tests are all negative, and they've been trying for a year, we know, okay, it's appropriate to proceed with treatment. But if they've been trying for less amount of time and there's a mild abnormality, we really don't know what to do with that. And some physicians may be more aggressive, so a couple may end up, you know, doing advanced treatment when, you know, a couple months later, they just would have gotten pregnant on their own and saved a lot of time and money. Right. And I think that's such an important point because a lot of times, you know, people say, well, what's the harm? Like, you know, okay, we're doing tests. And I mean, if the tests themselves are dangerous or really painful or really expensive or something like that, okay, you know, fine. But if the tests are basically benign in terms of risk, people always say, well, you know, what's the downside? And that happens in many areas, uh, certainly medicine, but in, you know, in OBGYN and infertility that you know, if you come in and get a test and it ends up being perfectly normal, everything, okay, fine. But as you said, the right thing to do if the tests were done earlier is just to wait. Okay, you know everything's normal, which is reassuring. If the tests are like way abnormal, then okay, you have your answer early and that's an advantage. But there's so many times it's in the middle. And then people are pressured either internally or maybe by the doctor to sort of act on those when if they just let everything be, everything would have been fine. And that you can end up in a situation where you go down a road, you wish you could not have gone down. Exactly. And who is it that makes those decisions about, you know, when to get tested? When that, I assume that's usually just the patient's gynecologist or obstetrician, meaning it wouldn't be the, the first line would not be seeing a specialist typically. Well, that's an interesting question because that if it's something like checking the husband's sperm count and motility, um, what we call a semen analysis, that can be ordered by the gynecologist. And that's a test that's done in the lab. And that's the one thing that there may not be any clue from a couple's history that there would be a problem. That when a couple has difficulty conceiving, about a third of the time we can localize the problem to the woman's reproductive system. 
about a third of the time to the male system, and about a third of the time is the combination of factors. So, you know, I have plenty of couples where the the husband is healthy, normal weight, no medical issues, and, you know, unfortunately, we find there's a significant decrease in the sperm count. I mean, nowadays we can work around that. So, you know, that might be a good test to do. Most gynecologists don't have the, the, the training or they look at things a little bit differently. So I think for most couples, it makes sense to have the evaluation done by a specialist rather than the OBGYN. But again, it depends on the individual doctor and the couple's circumstance. But certainly ordering a sperm test is something that can be done beforehand And, you know, if it's normal, then say, okay, fine, try for a couple more months. And if it doesn't happen, see a specialist versus if there's a decrease, then see a specialist. Now, the caveat with that is that I've had plenty of couples that the sperm count's been a little bit abnormal. And this gets into the timing situation where it's perfectly possible that that couple could conceive on their own but then they get sent to a urologist and it starts a, a cascade. And also, since it does take two to conceive, that mild abnormality in the semen analysis has to be interpreted in, in light of the woman's system. So, you know, if the wife is 22 with no medical problems, you know, that's very different than if the wife is 40. Right, which makes a lot of sense. And so just to sort of summarize that, if, if there's no obvious suspicion of, a, of an issue, meaning the woman's cycles are regular, there's no history of anything unusual that would suggest, you know, either scarring in her tubes or anything, you would typically recommend a couple under 35 wait until 12 months, uh, unless there's, again, one of those factors, or if there's maybe some increased anxiety and they want to, you know, meet earlier and decide what test to do earlier. And if the couple's over 35 in the same circumstance, typically around six months, at least as, a, as the baseline for what people should consider. Right. I mean, those aren't really my recommendations. Right. Those are the fairly standard <laughs> recommendations. And, but you follow um, them. <laughs> I, 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 I follow them. And the good thing is that a lot more insurances are covering fertility evaluation and treatment, but they also abide by those rules. So a lot of time, you know, treatment won't be covered until a couple has been trying for a year or, you know, if the wife is over 35 for six months. But if there's, let's say, some problem identified, uh, either she has a, you know, issue with ovulation or the tubes are noted to be blocked, that might be a little bit different? Correct. Got it. Okay. And so, and I've had to have a discussion with insurance companies that... um, Advocate. Advocate is the big word we use now. Advocate. (laughs) We had a mutual patient who has never ovulated on her own. And so she got pregnant pretty quickly the first time when she was given medication to ovulate. And then she came back wanting to have another child and her insurance said, well, she can't because she hasn't been trying for a year. And I had to explain to several people that it doesn't matter if she has unprotected intercourse for a month or two years that she's not going to get pregnant because she doesn't ovulate. So we were eventually able to get them to understand that and she got pregnant and came back to you. Fantastic. So just to explain, what what are the main causes or the most common causes that you find for infertility or patients having difficulty conceiving? Well, 
First of all, I like the way you asked that question because common cause for having difficulty conceiving is not ovulating regularly. And once we help the woman to ovulate, oftentimes these patients will get pregnant very quickly. So it's not, it's technically an infertility problem, but it's really more an ovulation problem. And so that's a very common problem. And many patients I see are frustrated because their periods are irregular and they're not getting pregnant and they don't realize how common it is, number one, and number two, that that's something that can be readily treated. We first try to identify the cause of the irregular periods, which can be something hormonal. There's something called polycystic ovary syndrome, which is a common condition, or it can be that the area of the brain, the hypothalamus that controls ovulation, isn't producing hormones in a regular fashion. And sometimes it can be a separate issue that's impacting on ovulation. If a woman has a low thyroid or an overactive thyroid or an adrenal gland problem. Also, sometimes if someone is exercising too much, that can deter ovulation or if a woman is significantly underweight or overweight. So that's very common. And again, if that's the only issue, then once we get that addressed, the woman usually gets pregnant pretty easily. Another issue can be with the uterus that sometimes a woman's uterus can be heart-shaped either because she has a septum inside it or or what we call a bicornuate uterus. Now, this is something that more likely will predispose someone to miscarry than to have difficulty conceiving, but sometimes it can be both. More common issue is if a woman has a polyp, which is almost always a benign growth inside the uterus or a fibroid, which is a little bit of a ball of muscle tissue. And sometimes these can cause irregular bleeding, but oftentimes they're asymptomatic. And this is something that we can easily identify with a test called a hysterosalpingogram, which is done in the radiology suite and a little bit of radiopaque dye is put through a catheter through the cervix and then fills up the uterus and goes out the fallopian tubes. And we can visualize the inside of the uterus and also make sure the tubes are normal and open. Or a sauna histogram, which is done with sterile water and an ultrasound, and again, we can visualize the uterus. And a couple times a year, I'll see a patient who has no obvious symptoms, and it turns out they have a polyp inside their uterus. We remove the polyp, which is something that's done on an outpatient basis, and they get pregnant very quickly. Right. And the thought is that the polyp was just inhibiting implantation because it's in the cavity of the uterus? Right. So it acts like a little IUD. Uh-huh. So it's like a foreign body inside that prevents implantation, or sometimes it can predispose to miscarriage. In terms of the ovulation, which you said is very common, if a woman has irregular periods, does that mean by definition she's not ovulating or ovulating at unpredictable times? Yeah. Generally, a woman gets a period two weeks plus or minus two days after ovulation. So if someone's getting a bleed every month, you know, every 28 days, 30 days, you know, plus or minus a few days, almost certainly she's ovulating regularly. If someone has a bleed every two or three months, 
they may or may not be ovulating because it may be that the lining just builds up and then sloughs off, or it may be that she's ovulating irregularly or a combination of both. Right. And I think that's that's such a simple and question to ask and to look at when you know, I don't do fertility workup or treatment in my practice, but when like friends or family call me, the first question I'll always ask is, are you having regular periods? And if the answer is yes, then it's like, all right, then almost certainly you're ovulating and that's not the issue. And if the answer is no, then almost certainly either you're not ovulating or ovulating irregularly and unpredictably and that has to be addressed. And I think that that's such a simple uh, thing that women can think of. You know, my periods are regular. It's one thing. And if they're not regular, it's much more likely to need to be addressed. And does it always need hormones or some sort of treatment for ovulation? Or can women just sort of try other ways they can figure out when they might be ovulating if they have irregular periods? Nowadays, a lot of people come in with apps, like telling them when they're going to ovulate or so-called tracking their ovulation. But it, but the apps are just based on mathematical formulas based on previous periods and on knowing that you generally get your period two weeks after ovulation. So they're not really predictive. So It's like the market. Uh, previous performance cannot predict the future, right? <laughs> exactly. Because ovulation is a hormonal process, most of the time it does need to be addressed hormonally. But that's a circumstance where if someone has a regular period, I would just go to a specialist rather than an OBGYN because that's not really their their focus. So certainly, you know, if someone's getting their period 28 days, 30 days, you, you know, plus or minus two or three days, that's considered regular. But if someone's getting their period 30 days one month, 42 the next month, then that's the kind of situation I would just go straight to a fertility specialist, not wait six months. And and again, because it's much less likely that they're going to get pregnant on, that she'll get pregnant on her own, but also a high chance with regulating ovulation that she will get pregnant. Right. And the important thing is that the, the, that seeing a fertility specialist for something like that does not mean they're getting IVF. Right, they're getting something well, way less. I mean, they might, they may end up it that way, but not that it shouldn't necessarily do that. Right. I mean, unfortunately, sometimes can, people can be a little bit over aggressive, but in general, no. And it's you know to get someone to ovulate regularly and then say, okay, let's do this for a while. Now, sometimes there are additional factors, but but oftentimes, once someone's ovulating regularly they get pregnant within a couple cycles. Excellent. And then when you mentioned, you know, things inside the uterus, like a fibroid or a polyp, which could be, or a septum, which could be removed. But if the tubes are noted to be blocked by the hysterosalpicogram, that they, for whatever reason, they're endometriosis or prior infection or, you know, an ectopic pregnancy in the past, they were blocked. Is there any solution for that? When the tubes show up as being blocked on the hysterosalpicogram, there's about a 15% chance that it can be a false positive, that the tubes have muscle in them. And sometimes when you put the dye through, it can cause a muscle spasm. So that's if the tube's blocked in the beginning um, versus if it's dilated and blocked at the end. So number one, it's important to clarify the diagnosis. So if a patient does the hysterosalpingogram and it shows the tubes are blocked, in the beginning part of the tube and 
the patient doesn't have a history of infection or any other reason to suggest why they would be blocked, oftentimes in that situation, we'll do a laparoscopy, which is an outpatient surgical procedure where it's done under general anesthesia. And we put a laparoscope, which is like a little telescope through the patient's belly button and can actually look inside and look at the uterus, the tubes, and the ovaries, and under anesthesia, put colored fluids through the cervix into the uterus. And because the patients are given a muscle relaxant for the anesthesia, it also relaxes the fallopian tubes. So, you know, I've had patients where it just doesn't make sense that the tubes would be blocked. So before running off to do in vitro fertilization or a procedure to open up the tube, we'll go to the operating room to confirm the diagnosis. And oftentimes, in fact, the tubes will be open, but occasionally I have had patients that they just have congenital blockage of the tubes or maybe an infection they didn't realize and it is blocked. Now, before in vitro fertilization, which is when we take the eggs and out from the, and combine them with the sperm in the lab and then put the fertilized embryo back inside the uterus, that when there was a blockage of the tube, the only option was to do surgery to try to repair the tube. The problem is that the tubes are kind of like elastic, and once elastic gets stretched out, you can't really get it to go back to the way it was before. And the tubes are just not a conduit for the egg and sperm. They have little cilia on the inside, and oftentimes when the tube is blocked, the cilia becomes damaged. And the problem is if you open up the tube, either by surgery or radiologically, the patient may get pregnant, but there you have a much increased risk of having a tubal pregnancy, which is a potentially life-threatening situation and doesn't result in a normal child. So while there are things that you can do, we really don't operate on the tubes anymore. And, you know, sometimes they can be opened up radiologically, but personally in my practice, I'm not a fan of doing that. So basically, if the tubes are confirmed to be blocked, you and probably many others would just recommend IVF as the safest and the most uh, productive way to, to get pregnant. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, even with IVF, a woman can still get an ectopic that we the the embryo inside the uterus, but it can travel up to the tube and get stuck. But the chances are much less, and that's what we would recommend. And what would happen if you identify that, the, as you said, about one-third is from the male reproductive tract? So what kind of issues might there be, and how amenable are those to treatments? Most of the time, when there's a decrease in the sperm production, We don't know why, and there's not much we can do to improve it. However, the most common treatable, so sometimes the first thing is to make sure the husband is not on a medication that can be um, adversely affecting the sperm count. Or I recently saw a couple that had been trying for about a year, and it turned out the husband was an athlete, and he liked to use the sauna after exercising, after he stopped doing the sauna, or similarly, I've had um, husbands who like to use the hot tub, that their sperm count came back up. So, so sometimes, um, because the sperm, for whatever reason, are designed to be formed at slightly less than body temperature. So if someone's doing something that elevates 
the temperature in the scrotum, that can impair sperm function. Again, to get a thorough history and sometimes it can be hormonal, although the incidence of a hormonal cause of low sperm production in men is much, much lower than the incidence of irregular ovulation due to hormonal problem in women. The most common treatable cause that we see is something called a varicocele, which most adults get varicose veins in their legs. It's not uncommon for men to get a dilated vein in their scrotum. Now, sometimes it doesn't cause a problem, but in some men, having this dilated vein in the scrotum is like having a little heat coil in the testicle, next to the testicle, and it can raise the temperature of the testicle. Now, it's not as though a man can realize, okay, my testicle is now at 99 degrees instead of 96 degrees, but the sperm are temperature sensitive. And if a man has a varicocele on one side or both sides, then the urologist who is trained to do this can remove the varicocele. It's done not in the scrotum. It's done kind of like where a hernia incision is done. And that can sometimes cause remarkable um, improvement in sperm function and So when I have a situation where a husband has decrease in sperm count and particularly in the motility of the sperm, that I'll refer him to a urologist who specializes in male fertility. And if a varicocele is identified either on exam or ultrasound or both, that will recommend having surgery. And is there anything to do if there isn't a treatable cause of the low sperm count or or motility? As we said, as I mentioned earlier, that if it's a mild decrease, that may not be significant. Mm-hmm. And so that's why the difference of like if you order a semen analysis before a couple starts trying to conceive and there's a mild decrease in motility and there's no varicocele, then it may or may not be significant. If there's more profound decrease or if a couple's been trying for you know, a year, then really the best treatment option is to go to in vitro fertilization. And with in vitro fertilization, it's really remarkable. We only need a few sperm. And fortunately, while we can see a decrease in sperm motility or the concentration of the sperm, the important part of the sperm is the nucleus of the, from the sperm head. And that really doesn't seem to be affected most of the time. Or in other words, the genetic material seems to be fine, even though there may be a problem with the packaging of the sperm. We've had mutual patients who have had four or five children through in vitro fertilization, even though the husband may only have five or six sperm in in a sperm ejaculate where normally there's millions of sperm. Right, because if you can find them, you know, you can take them and either put them near the egg or even inject them into the egg. Right. And well, when there's decrease in the parameters, we always inject it. And we've even have couples where the husband doesn't have any sperm in the ejaculate and the urologist can do a little biopsy of the testicle and find sperm and use that for in vitro fertilization. What you said before about, you know, couples over 35, what is it exactly about age that does affect fertility? Well, age affects everything. But we're unfortunately living in bodies that were designed a long time ago when people didn't live past 40. So just as 
everyone ages that there's a decrease in fertility that's seen in both men and women, but it's generally seen sooner in women than in men. And so a woman actually has the most number of eggs before she's even born. So in some sense, her fertility starts decreasing before she's even born. But there's a gradual decrease in the egg number and quality over time. Now, in most women, this becomes more pronounced as they get into their late 30s and early 40s, and it becomes much more difficult for most women to conceive after the age of 42. But there are exceptions that I've had patients who unfortunately have gone through menopause before they go through puberty. You know, I just had a patient who just got married at 44 and got pregnant right away. So there's a lot of variability, and likewise in men, that there are men who have very low sperm counts or even don't produce any sperm at a young age, and, you know, men in their 60s or 70s who father children. We don't really know specifically what's caused it, but it manifests itself generally in a decrease in the number of eggs and an increase in the hormones that that stimulate the ovary. So part of the evaluation that we do when a woman's had difficulty conceiving is to evaluate what we call the ovarian reserve, which looks at the number of the eggs and the follicle-stimulating hormone, which is the main hormone that stimulates the production of the eggs. We measure this in the beginning part of the menstrual cycle. And if there's a decrease in the ovarian reserve, then we're going to be more aggressive with treatment versus if the ovarian reserve looks good, then we may go less aggressive route. Right. And so for both of these, starting first with age, is there an age above which you would recommend women sort of immediately start seeing a fertility specialist or is it, you know, just about odds? As I mentioned, I just had someone who came, who had just gotten married at 44 and came in and she really didn't think she would have the option of conceiving on her own. She thought she'd need to use a surrogate. And, you know, I was able to reassure her, number one, at 44, she was in very good physical condition. She should be able to carry a child. And while the chances were less that she could conceive on her own, they weren't zero. And in fact, she, she got pregnant easily. I would say, you know, if someone's having regular cycles and there's nothing in their background, you know, maybe to get a semen analysis and try for a few months, but it can be individual. Maybe someone wants, you know, in that situation, you know, if someone's over 40, I think, you know, there's no harm in going in early to, to do an evaluation and come up with a plan, but, you know, not to jump right into treatment. Right. And then when you said the test for the ovarian reserve, is that the AMH test? The classical evaluation of ovarian reserve is to measure follicle-stimulating hormone and estradiol, which is the hormone that the ovary produces in response, because if the estradiol level can impact the FSH level. And to do an ultrasound and actually count the number of follicles that a woman has at the beginning part of the cycle, 
each follicle is a little cyst that is around an egg, and the egg is microscopic, but we can see the follicle. So the AMH is basically an indirect measurement of um, the number of follicles. So someone can have a relatively low follicle count, but the quality can be good and they can get pregnant easily, and vice versa. They can have you know, a high number of eggs and a good AMH, but it turns out there's a problem with them. So as a specialist, I really don't put much value in the AMH. I prefer to do an ultrasound in the FSH. If someone has an AMH, I'll look at it. But there have been plenty of studies that show that, you know, an AMH level per se does not, is not that predictive for fertility. And, you know, I see a lot of patients that come in very concerned because, you know, they have a low AMH number which it's appropriate at that point to do an evaluation, but it's very different if their AMH is low, but their FSH is good versus their AMH is low and their FSH is high. But also FSH is not in and of itself predictive. I've seen patients with significantly elevated FSHs who've gotten pregnant and patients with low FSHs who have not. And there have even been women with AMHs of zero who have gotten pregnant there are multiple factors involved with conceiving, so it's important to remember that. So there's really, there's not like a test that we can do that says someone's fertile or someone's not um, fertile. Again, this is for me, it's mostly friends and family or, you know, sometimes my patients, but again, I'm not the one sort of seeing them for their gynecologic visits. And I would say, you know, it it's the whole picture. It's the whole story. It's not one blood test or one ultrasound result or one factor. You have to really get a full evaluation that goes from the very beginning to the very end. And then if it's someone who knows what they're doing and they do this all the time, though, they should hopefully give you a very realistic sense of what's going on. You know, what are your chances if we do nothing? And here's option A and here's option B and sort of lay it all out. But to just focus on a blood test or you know, one particular thing is really, uh, it's just, it's its not enough to get a good answer. Right. And also for, you know, I've had patients say, well, I checked my AMH and it's good, but that really doesn't mean anything as far as, or should say it, it's not that it doesn't mean anything, but it has limited value as far as fertility. So that can be reassuring someone has a good number of eggs. But again, it doesn't say anything about quality or for how long that will last. Someone has to keep in mind the whole picture. Right. And and considering the fact, however, that age does have an impact on fertility, what are your thoughts on egg freezing? You know, who is that done for? Is it routine? Is it sort of a luxury? You know, is it, you know, does it work? How, how do you How do you feel about that? Sperm freezing has been around for a long time, and we have, in general, good results from sperm freezing. An egg is a very complicated cell, and it's own, while egg freezing has been around for a while, it's really in the past couple years that it's no longer considered experimental. So it's become more popular to do, but as more women are using their frozen eggs, we're seeing that, unfortunately, the pregnancy rate with frozen eggs is not as good as we would like, and that just because someone and an egg number doesn't guarantee fertility. So you know, some of the women who freeze their eggs, use them, and don't get pregnant, we don't know, well, if this woman had used the eggs fresh at that time, she may have had difficulty also. 
So that, you know, if a woman is in her mid-30s and not in a position to get pregnant, it's kind of like buying an insurance policy that, well, there there's no harm in freezing the eggs and it's a good thing to do, but also not to um, to get a false sense of security from doing it. Now, if unfortunately someone's, you know, facing cancer treatment, you know, absolutely, I would, with a treatment that is likely to impact either their egg, her egg production, or because of her cancer treatment, she won't be in a position where it'll be safe for her to get pregnant for a couple years, then um, I would strongly recommend egg freezing. But it's relatively new, you know, it's good to do. Now, I've had patients come in at 28 saying they want to freeze their eggs. I'll check their ovarian reserve, but if someone's 28 with good ovarian reserve, like we can't guarantee that they won't have trouble in the next couple of years, but it's unlikely. And also it's an evolving technology. So, you know, someone who's 28 with a good ovarian reserve, I think it's a little bit early to freeze eggs. You know, likewise, if someone is 42 and they only have a few eggs, then unfortunately it's it's probably not going to be um, productive to do that. Right. And so if they're 28, number one, it, it's early in that it may not be necessary, obviously, because they don't know their situation. And number two, they may be better off if they really are going to freeze them, wait two or three years because the technology may be better and they may have a better success rate if they ultimately you know, get pregnant in their late 30s or something like that with them. Right. And so what what is the typical age that women would do it? Is it like 30 to 35 and sort of that zone? Women do it at all different ages now. So the earlier you do it, the better quality eggs per se that you'll have. We also don't know, you know, how long eggs are good for. Like in theory, because of the way they're frozen, time shouldn't matter. But we haven't been doing this long enough in a big enough volume to know, in fact, that there six years or seven years, we start seeing a decrease. So it's individualized. So if there was one study that showed looking at when people actually use the eggs, the cost of freezing and things that came out with 37 as the kind of ideal age to do it. I think most people would say, I mean, certainly if someone's 37 and they have relatively good reserve or even, you know, they're they're starting to lose their ovarian reserve to do it. But from an ideal point of view, you know, probably early 30s. But I've had patients who've had two children and they're a little bit overwhelmed and they, they say, well, they want to wait a couple of years before trying to have a third. And they call me up and say, well, you know, should I freeze my eggs because I, you know, um, I, I can't have a, I want to have a third child, but I can't do it right now. Well, in that situation where someone has proven fertility and they don't have decreased ovarian reserve, I wouldn't recommend freezing. So, you know, it's kind of like with COVID-19. If we all stayed in our homes and no one ever went out ever, then the virus wouldn't spread. But we have to balance, you know, the economy and other factors with social isolation. So there, there's not a single answer that's going to apply to everyone. Right. And so, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It, it all comes back to COVID, of course. Women obviously will come to you for fertility treatments who are not, you know, quote unquote, infertile, like you said, if, you know, there isn't a male partner or maybe they have 
you know, there's there's other reasons they may need IVF. But putting those aside, for a couple who comes to you who is having difficulty conceiving, in general, what is the likelihood that, you know, after everything, you know, end of the road, whatever it comes to, that they will ultimately have a successful pregnancy and a baby? Is it in terms of when you meet them for the first time or is it different percentages based on the exact circumstance? It does depend on the exact circumstances, but the good news is most people will be successful. And one way or the other, we, we oftentimes will get there. And, you know, sometimes the couple will come in and I think, okay, this shouldn't be too hard. And, you know, it takes three cycles of IVF. And other times the couple can come in and they're, you know, in their early 40s and it looks like there's going to be multiple challenges and, you know, they conceive um, easily. So the important thing is to, you know, to get an evaluation and to be persistent. And oftentimes it can be challenging and draining, but it's ultimately very rewarding. And the good news is most most people will be successful. Right. I think one of the challenges a lot of women have when they see all specialists, it's not unique to, you know, fertility specialists, obviously, is, you know, the first question is, how do I know if, you know, she or he is being too aggressive, meaning someone sees a fertility specialist and they say, you really need to do IVF. And they're sort of like, well, is it, is that really aggressive? Could, are there other things you can do? And it may be the absolute right thing to do, but how would they know? And the second thing is sort of on the flip side, if it's not working, are they doing all the right things or should we be doing more? And how would anyone have any sense of that from, you know, the patient's perspective? If the specialist is either being too aggressive or maybe not doing enough things, how would they possibly gauge that? If they're a friend of yours, they should ask you. Um, <laughs> okay. And then I'll ask you and um, then you'll tell me and I'll tell them. <laughs> perfect. Um, it's worked very well. What I would not advise people to do is try to get an answer over the internet because unfortunately there's a lot of unedited information on there. And the good news is that people are talking more about conceiving. And so if someone has a friend that they're close with, you know, sometimes, you know, sharing information that way. Although again, everybody's situation is different and the friend may not share with you that, you know, she had chlamydia when she was in college or that, you know, may not want you to know that her husband has a decreased sperm count. So the two sources are, you know, if someone has a regular OBGYN to call up their OB and said, you know, I've been seeing Dr. Smith and he thinks, you know, we should jump into IVF. Do you think that sounds right? And the other thing is to go for a second opinion and make it clear at the time of the appointment that you want to get another opinion. And personally, I'm always happy to give second opinions and not try to take the patient away from the regular doctor. And it doesn't mean that someone's unhappy with their doctor. And, you know, if the doctor says you need IVF and you don't, you're not ready to take that jump to get another opinion. And, you know, I've had patients come to me where I think, no, you know, they don't necessarily need IVF. There might be alternatives and we've tried those. Or, you know, patients come and I said, yes, you know, I agree, you you know, you do need IVF. Or likewise, if someone's seeing a doctor and it's not working, to to get a second opinion. Now, sometimes, unfortunately, it's just the challenge of the situation and that, you know, just because 
someone's done three cycles of IVF and they haven't gotten pregnant doesn't mean they haven't had very good care. But it may be an appropriate time to check to see, to get a, a second opinion, to question the doctor. The doctor should be able to justify what's going on. You know, sometimes you get a sense when you're meeting with someone, if if they're able to explain their reasoning to you, you know, it's not just, this is what I say, this is how it has to be. If they're able to explain it to you and also say, well, you know, here are the few options and here's why I think this option is the best option. And it sounds reasonable. That's a lot different from just going in and someone saying, this is what you need. And I think that it takes time. And like you said, sometimes it does take getting a second opinion to feel comfortable that this is the a good recommendation. And obviously, you know, getting the sort of the seal of approval from your OBGYN who you may know and trust for a long time. And if, you know, she or he says, yeah, this person's really, really good. I would, you know, trust what she says. I would trust what he says. That That means a lot. Another thing about the internet is I would try to shy away from saying, oh, this person has good ratings online because a lot of this just are they nice or not or does their office run on time and it's good to have good ratings online but i think that that's not really uh, the the deepest dive into how good a doctor is uh, for better or worse there are people i think you can hire now that will write good ratings for you or i was at a dinner party and a doctor said like someone else had hired bad someone to write bad ratings about another a colleague <laughs> that he knew about and so some people, you know, so it's a marketing thing. So I wouldn't go very much about, I don't look at other doctors' readings. And also also with IVF statistics, there are a lot of programs that they pick and choose which patients they treat. So they'll treat the patients that just have the best prognosis and it ups their IVF statistics. Or they'll push patients into IVF prematurely, and that ups the ratings. You can look at things, but to take everything with a grain of salt. This has been fantastic. I learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners did. Thank you so much for coming on uh, and talking about this. If you want to learn more about Dr. Lobel, uh, you do have a website, www.metropolitanrmlikemary.com. That's the word metropolitan with an R and an M at the end, oneword.com. And I'm certain we will have you on for more podcasts. And I'm also certain we'll speak probably several times a week forever. Well, I look forward (laughs) to it. And thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.